Welcome back to the second part of our episode of Women and the Law in the 19th Century. This is perhaps the weightiest topic we've covered in this podcast series, so I've called on one of Australia's leading feminist legal scholars, Professor Kim Rubenstein from the University of Canberra, to take us through the history of the relationship between Australian women and our constitution. We are meeting in the highly evocative cabinet room of the old Parliament House in Canberra, Although it is a museum today, it was once the seat of power in Australia. Professor Rubenstein's credentials as a legal scholar and feminist are peerless. She is the nation's leading expert in citizenship law. Indeed, she quite literally wrote the book that all Australian legal students must read on the subjects. In 2013, she was awarded the Edna Ryan Award for Leadership for her work in Leading Feminist Changes in the Public Sphere. She's also the inaugural co-director of the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra, where she is a professor in the university's Faculty of Business, Government and Law. I first heard Kim speak at a lecture she gave on women in the Australian Constitution, and I was struck by something she said in that context. It was one of those light bulb moments for me in my own work in feminist art history. Professor Rubenstein said something so simple and so profound that I went away feeling that I had unlocked some great secret. She argued that women had been she argued that had women been at the table when the Australian Constitution was being drafted in the first place, we most certainly would not have a parliament that was situated at a significant distance from almost every constituent's home. Furthermore, this distance was so unconducive to domestic life that women were discouraged from entering politics for decades, despite the fact that Australia was the first country in the world to give women the right to run for office. From the get-go, the system and the infrastructure of the political process entirely suited men, who could be away from home for long stints of time. The recent ABC TV series, misrepresented about women members of parliament showed us in stark reality that democratic democratic government in Australia has often failed to include women in its ranks, not only by number but in form. From the absence of female toilets in the building to the long sitting hours, women were forced to fit into a system and a culture that was not simply masculinist but also anti-women. And yet of course half of society is female and we're supposedly in a representative democracy. Yet for most decades of the 20th century, and of course throughout the 19th century, the laws governing women were all made by men. The 19th century may have ended at midnight on the 31st of December 1900, but in fact it kept on going. Its mores and customs and conditions carried over and influenced how traditional gender roles prevailed well into the 20th century. In fact, some argue that we still live with their legacy today. Good morning, Kim, and welcome to our podcast in the 19th century. Um, this is such an evocative room that we're sitting in. We, sure is. We are in the cabinet room of um, the old Parliament House of Australia, where many weighty decisions would have been made. Indeed. It's, uh, it does have a gravitas, doesn't it? The wood panelling, um, the, the clock with their green and red on either side, the flags, the hansard... It does uh, ground you, doesn't it, in terms of the weight of democracy in a way? Yeah, it does. And I was thinking about it when we walked in. I wonder when it was that the first woman ever was sitting in this room mm. as a cabinet minister. Could have been Enid Lyons. Enid Lyons. Mm. Yes, could be. We'll go and check that. Yes. <laughs> to be sure about it. But um, 
yes, it would have been interesting. I mean, the round table is more inclusive, isn't it, in the sense of a, a sense of community around the table. But I guess if you're one of, you know, ten plus people, that's well. It's an experience that many women have had, that's for sure. Yeah, it would have been very intimidating being the only woman in the room, probably. Yes, yeah. um, our wonderful colleagues at the Museum of Australian Democracy have um, confirmed for us that while the first female member elected to Australian Parliament was, of course, Dame Enid Lyons, um, the first female minister to sit in the very cabinet room where we have um, been meeting today um, was Dame Margaret Guilfoyle who served as a senator for Victoria between the years 1971 and 1987. So it took a long time before we had a woman minister in cabinet. Well, let's go back into the 19th century. Um, One of the things I've been thinking about was that suffrage and federation Mm -hmm. were probably the two most significant topics that were facing Australian society in the late 19th century. Yes. And in fact, the South Australian Premier, Sir John Coburn, declared in a speech in London in 1897 that he felt that the enfranchisement of women was the great question of the century. Perhaps we may say it is the great question of all time. Mm. Um, how did these two debates become so intertwined in yeah. Australian colonial politics? Look, i um, very happy to dive into that, but that notion at the end of his statement that it may be the most pressing question of all time is one that I think grows larger and larger in my mind, but that's coming to the present more than going back into the past. But I think it is the value of going back into the past is to recognise just how significant it is for the present and the ongoing question about gender equity, which is, um, is I think, the, one of the greatest questions of our time. But those women in the 1890s were active. They weren't, even though they didn't have a vote, and in fact, because they didn't have the vote, they were committed to a campaign for suffrage. And that term suffrage is linked to that notion that they wanted the right to vote and and we um, generically refer to that notion of a of a vote as suffrage it's quite interesting though isn't it i wonder what the etymology of suffer because it ha- sounds like suffering doesn't it it does sound like yeah, suffering and yeah. i think people get confused it's a strange term but um suffrage is literally the vote it is the vote and when we talk about um the franchise we're talking about the right to vote, who is included in that, who is included in the suffrage. And enfranchisement was the enabling of different people who had otherwise been excluded from voting to become voters. And in essence, in the 19th century, voting was very much about wealth and um, hierarchy financially and property ownership. So gender was not the only issue at play in terms of access to um, suffrage. It was also about working class people who didn't necessarily own property. So we're talking about a period in which there was a challenge broadly to um, how democracy functions and who actually had power in society. And it is, again, coming back to the the present, those even though formally we've made those changes, I think that they're really substantial societal questions about whose voice is heard more by virtue of property ownership in Australia today and, and money and power. But that's taking us away from where you're wanting us to talk, go. So let's go back to those women of the 1890s. And, of course, South Australian women were the um, trailblazers in terms of Australian democracy of getting the right to vote. 
and in essence the combination of their right to vote and the move towards federation coalesced. So that's the direct answer to your question that the women who were politically active were you know, very substantially politically active around the vote but linked to that were social issues that were affecting women. So again the commonality of issues um, of uh, drunkenness and alcohol and its impact on on families at, at in the 19th century i mean we see different forms of that today in terms of what's going on in parliament house and a lot of discussion about the amount of of alcohol that's available in that close circles you know in that close those close quarters that is part of the issue about you know workplace safety and culture in parliament so it's so interesting the similarities of issues played out in different ways but those women um, were very interested in using the move towards federation as a way of saying that all women in Australia should have the right to vote, not just women in South Australia. Mm. We're going to get to South Australia mm. in detail in a moment, but yes. first I wanted to stop on the road and ask about Catherine Helen Spence. Right, yes. Um, she wrote a fabulous pamphlet. Pamphlets were the, one of the key ways people would get their messages across in the 19th century. Yes. Um, they were quite cheap to produce. And in 1861, she wrote A Plea for Pure Democracy. She's sort of considered the founding mother of the women's yes. suffrage movement in Australia. Can you tell us about Catherine Helen Spence? Yes, look, Catherine Helen Spence is certainly a hero in terms of my own sense of... Um, Active citizen. I mean, she was a writer. She had to write um, under a pseudonym, otherwise she wouldn't have been published as a woman. So she was a journalist, writer, political activist and, you know, theorist. She had been influenced and committed to proportional representation. The What is now known as the Hare-Clark system um, should really be called the Hare-Spence system because she was trying to promote, at around the time of the convention debates, um, representative democracy through proportional representation as a fairer way of representing the, the people. And um, she was a, just a tireless, act, active citizen and inspiring, really, in terms of that period and the expectations of women, how she um, really represented so much that all of us should be very inspired by men and women alike. And where was she lobbying from mostly? So she is from South Australia. So she's a South Australian... Um, and she, because women in South Australia had the right to vote and to stand in Parliament, she was our first woman political candidate for a federal election because the convention debates of the 1890s were the first federal framework for framing the Constitution. And she wanted to be there to bring in those ideas into the discussion about what would be in the Constitution. And in fact, the commentary in the papers was um, that she was one of the 10 best men <laughs> who could be elected. But she puts down her failure to the fact that some people raised a question mark as to whether she could actually sit. Because even though South Australia had enabled women, <coughs> excuse me, to be able to, um, to vote and stand, it wasn't, that wasn't federally um, accessible yet. And the common law in England wasn't clear as to whether women could um, sit in Parliament. In fact, it was less likely they could have. And so there was a fear factor for voting for her that it would be a wasted vote because she wouldn't act, someone would challenge her right to sit. And she said if not for that fear factor, she probably would have been elected and she would have really had... She would have been the basis for it being the, the Hare-Spence system rather than the Hare-Clark system because Andrew Inglis Clark, 
who was at the convention debates in Tasmania, proposed proportional representation and he's the one that's given the glory. Well, there's many stories. We have a lake in front of this building called um, Lake Burley Griffin, Mm. which really should be acknowledging Mary Mahoney Griffin as well. (laughs) <laughs> who really did design a yes. large part of Canberra. Yeah. But that's another um, story. I just, as you were talking, I just thought maybe we should talk about quickly those conventions that were established yes. because people won't understand how that the constitution came to be yes. because it was a series of conventions yes. and it went back to England and yes. etc. So can you yes. run us through that little history? Absolutely. So the shorthand version is, of course, Australia was settled as colonies, so Australia as a whole wasn't settled, it was the individual colonies, so New South Wales and Victoria and Tasmania, and they all functioned in the 19th century as their own jurisdiction or their own political entities in terms of their relationship with the United Kingdom. So they were outposts of the United Kingdom, the common law, English law was sort of settled in Australia, but the semi-democratic format started and that was my reference to property owners largely being the ones who had the vote in, in the early period. And um, each of them developed their own laws for their own areas. But of course, when you're living in one landmass and people travel between those areas, it started to cause, as we're seeing in our COVID world, difficulties in terms of, of barriers between the different colonies or different rules applying in one place compared to another place. And one of those um, that was um, of common concern but with different rules was immigration restriction. And so in the 1850s, there was a sort of conference both with the United Kingdom and all the different colonies about how to better regulate immigration restriction. And, um, you know, I write about this in terms of the underpinnings of our constitution not being so um, morally sustaining for us today in that they came together to be able to help keep people out. Mm. That's what was one aspect. And then the other was about the economic framework that that made more sense in terms of tariffs and the different policies to do with a globalised, an early globalised sort of world as to, um, to trade that it would make more sense to have a uniform system of, of trade and economic framework. And so they were the two motivators for coming together for these constitutional conventions to work out a framework for a federal system so that you have a central Commonwealth Parliament, which of course we're now sitting in its first iteration, as well as the state parliaments continuing. So those colonies didn't disappear, they became the states and they are the states in our federal system. And each of the colonies determined for the people of the colony, so not their regular representatives in their own legislative bodies, but they opened it up to be a people's convention and people um, ran to be members of these conventions. And many of the people who were already politicians got elected and so they were both from their own legislatures but also part of the convention debates. But people like Catherine Helen Spence ran, she was the only woman, and were not successful. So, But it's refer- they were referred to as the people's conventions because they were opened up for the people. And interestingly, in um, 1998, we had a a centenary on um, a a version of that here again in this um, old parliament house um, of um, the Republic uh, discussions and and a convention to mirror that. And that also had half elected and half appointed. And I actually ran for the elected part and part of my argument was that because there weren't 
women at the convention debates of the 1890s, we, I had been part of a group that lobbied the government to say, given they were appointing half, they should make sure that half of that half were women. Um, and one wonders how many they really would have put if we hadn't even lobbied, because about a third, they appointed a third women. So even with very high attention to making that case, they still only came up with a third. So if we hadn't mm. had any sort of discussion, I hate to think how many women would have even been in the appointed. But given they didn't come up with half, I became part of a women's ticket saying we needed to make sure that more women were elected to, to balance that up. That's another whole long story. I ended up being here as an advisor to Misha Schubert, who was um, a youth candidate who managed to get all the preferences. So we, our women's ticket had more votes, first preference votes than Misha's youth ticket, but Misha had very carefully, it was one of my first political lessons, had very cleverly and strategically got all the, the sort of less likely um, electees to give her her preferences, uh, her, their preferences, and so she got up above us with her preferences and I came along as her advisor. So I was actually physically here but not in the chamber as a delegate but as an advisor to Misha Schubert. Well, many feminists say they, they, they enter the room by stealth. Yes, <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. And Misha was a great representative, so that's um, no um, disrespect to Misha. In fact, high respect for her political strategising. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, one of the photos of the Melbourne Convention, Victorian Convention in Melbourne, it really sums up what you're saying because Deacon's there, but he's, they're surrounded by um, all white men, basically. Yes. Yeah. And that, that, they've put that on the... Um, 19th century um, social media so everyone can have a look at that photo and it's good that we are now talking about Victoria because um, one of the key women in all of this of course is Vida Goldstein now do you say Vida or Vida? Now I so I've I've been interested in this for many many years because of course I pronounce my name Rubenstein not Rubenstein but I have found out that she's actually pronounced Vida Goldstein, the the two opposites to what I would normally think in my head. Right. So apparently so Vida she's Vida Gold, Goldstein. Great, mm. we've sorted that out. Mm. Now she's a fascinating woman, mm. and I don't think we would have made as much progress without her. Can no. you just take us through yes, um, Vida's her, story? Her, yeah, Vida's story and the other language is so wonderful in the nineteenth century. One particular term is the monster petition yes so wonderful um, let's talk about that so Vida I have a connection I feel like I mean obviously we all as women have a connection to because she was just such an active citizen as well but um, she's also a graduate of Presbyterian Ladies College and I'm a nice Jewish girl who's a graduate of Presbyterian Ladies College Vida probably had Jewish ancestry but was not Jewish Um, and um, well didn't um, her family um, I think had uh, the I think if you read um, Claire Wright's wonderful book, it says a little bit about her family history and also the, the biography of Vida. There's, there's, there's stuff out there in terms of their spiritual world. Um, mm. But she uh, was a strong advocate for women's voting rights um, and travelled the world to be advocating for that and was significant in terms of women's suffrage in 1902. But she was also um, the first woman candidate beyond the Constitutional Convention. So when the federal parliament had actually been created by virtue of our constitution, she was the first woman to um, put herself up as a representative and multiple times unsuccessfully because of her commitment to independence. And in fact, you think of these, again, the links to today, you Mm. know, the, the progress we've made on the capacity of women as independents in this parliament. 
um, they are really reflecting Ryder's impetus from that um, period where she did not want to be caught by a political party. She wanted to advocate her own particular her, her own particular policies and she always got great support but just not enough to get um, um, the, the preferences and otherwise to get her into Parliament. One thing I did read in Claire Wright's book, which we will give a quick little plug for, it's called um, You Daughters of Freedom and it is actually probably sort of the textbook now for yes. feminism in Australia. It's a remarkable book and remarkable that it took so long for someone to write yes, this story. Yes. But Although she, we should say, shout out, that there are lots of uh, books about these individual women. That's right. um, it's the, um, and Claire is a fabu- fabulous communicator. It's a nice compilation and story, her wonderful storytelling. Story mm. But there is a lot of material out there which is um, important also. And, I mean, I've got a book in front of me called A Woman's Constitution that Helen Irving edited, that which we, which was part of the, um, um, this was 1996, so this was um, r- related to the build-up to the um, convention, the Republican convention material, and there was a whole movement from the turn of the century in sort of um uh for renewing our constitution and this was really about all the different women who were involved and different writers who have been writing about these women for some time so i I was struck in claire's book the the passage where she talks about in fact one of um rider's opponents was in fact her father oh who did not not agree that women should have the vote yes yes interesting family history Mm. there yeah dynamics of families around the world probably yeah and and the other amazing thing i learned also from that book was that she went and visited teddy roosevelt Mm. the the president of the u.s who was very excited to have the first sort of enfranchised woman woman in in the white in the oval office look she yeah she was um a remarkable but there there were lots of them that's the thing we just haven't been given access to the information Mm. that they weren't these individuals they were working as part of a movement Mm. and that movement of women were key towards just keeping an eye on our time here get word key towards that section 41 of the constitution so they're so even though they um they were active and strategic to the extent that they could be in thinking through um, how they would use that period of the constitutional convention debates to push for policy issues that they were committed to so there's the whole question about um, control over um, liquor and alcohol is there's women's voices are through that there's the reference i think to being um, under God and the sort of religious aspect, there's you know different women's groups that were relevant to that, and of course, which we'll speak to about more, Section Forty One. Mm. So, um, um, let's move on to the monster petition oh, yes, because got, um, yes, the Vida travelled Victoria with her um, uh, her compatriots, I suppose is yes, the word, yes. um, to fellow campaigners. Fellow, fellow campaigners, and again we use strange language because we say fellow campaigners yes. it's sort of a masculine yes, term but yes. fellow campaigners who travelled Victoria in the 1890s yes. um, to have this petition signed so I've, I've actually got the petition yes. letter wording here and I Do thought maybe you, read you might it read it oh, it's, that's in, lovely. it's in purple too alright wonderful and I'm wearing purple I is it big enough? for the record yes I can see that the humble petition of the undersigned women of Victoria respectfully showeth that your petitioners believe that government of the people by the people and for the people should mean all the people and not one half 
that taxation and representation should go together without regard to the sex of the taxed, that all adult persons should have a voice in making the laws which they are required to obey, that, in short, women should vote on equal terms with men. It's wow. succinct, isn't it, and yes. logical. Yes. Um, so what happened to the monster petition? How many signatures did she get and what was its fate in Parliament? Wow. Well, I'm, I'm bringing up here and I'll direct all of the listeners that um, uh, if they do a search on um, Culture Victoria, they'll find a lot about the 1891 monster petition. Um, and it was, um, I think they had, was it 30,000 signatories? Yeah. So, and I've met people who know in their families that one of their ancestors is on the petition, you know, that the, essentially it was another form of active citizenship of mm. going around and getting the signatures of all of these women. And I've read things in terms of women doing it when their husbands weren't around or things like that because of this general um, mood, which we might come back to, that it wasn't appropriate for women to be voting. But these women who were enlivened to the reality that without the vote that it had such a significant impact on their lives and because they received so many they had to paste them all together and roll them up and so it literally was this monster large heavy petition that they had to carry in to the parliament and you just think of the visuals I mean there are some of the visuals you can actually see on this website the petition rolled mm. and rolled and rolled um, on a YouTube that Diane Gardner of Public Record Office of Victoria shows. And, um, you know, it's just remarkable. But it's remarkable if we think of the women's marches this year as well. You know, you can gather women together, but until they are actually in the parliament making the decisions, they're bringing it to parliament, but it's up to parliament whether it, it, it considers it. And if you think about it, um, this was an 1891 petition and it was still another 12 years not until 1902 for Australia and then in Victoria it was another seven years I mean it was not until 1908 in Victoria mm. so from 1891 to I mean we're talking about a significant period of time you gather all this force together but it still takes years and years and years like that in itself that democratic will doesn't translate immediately into action unless the people who are in there are really committed to doing it. And there was resistance because I think, if I'm right, it was the Premier himself who yes. tabled this bill yes. for, to enfranchise women. Um, yes. His wife was a um, suffragette, suffragist yes. as yes. well. Yes, Premier James Munro um, said he would introduce the bill. And he didn't, even even the Premier couldn't succeed in yeah. getting it through. Yes. Um, yes, it says here there were, um, it was glued to calico, all of those um, signatures the paper and it's 260 meters long it's enormous yes yeah it's it just is. absolutely enormous and then these were happening in other colonies yes, as well that's right and exactly. so what sort of numbers were they getting like was it was it sort of line ball that they were missing or was it no I don't I, I don't think I don't think the numbers I think that's the sort of point I'm trying to make that even though there was widespread support amongst women to enfranchise and that there were men unless the men in power who had the power were convinced themselves of it they obviously didn't see it as having enough political consequence because of course the women didn't have the vote yet mm. so it's that real tension between reflecting the will of the people and those who have the power 
to determine whether or not they're going to be bothered to reflect the will of the people. It's about, you know, the nature of representation. I think it's a really ongoing issue to this very day. But the link um, with those women um, around the country plus the women in South Australia who did have the vote, and they were the ones who we really can thank, that they petitioned their representatives in saying we will not, because they had the vote, we will not support federation unless you ensure you protect our right to vote. Mm -hmm. So again, it shows that your vote can have an influence if there's going to be a political consequence for that being ignored. Again, a greater message for today, let's hope, that if you know the women's voices of the marches are not properly heard, that that will have a political consequence ultimately in the next election. But here in the 1890s, those women in South Australia who did have the right to vote said to their delegates who were elected, not Catherine Helen Spence, but she still had a voice because she was saying, well, I have a right to vote. We all as women have a right to vote. If you don't support our right to vote continuing in a federal context, we won't support federation. So mm -hmm. section 41 of the constitution is a testament to those women who, s who were requiring that. Um, we're going to get on to that yes, section. Sorry, no, no, no. Uh, no everything inter intertwines. Yes. I just wanted to stick with Victoria for a minute sure. because I was curious to see that it was, I think I'm right here saying it was largely the Senate that rejected the bills. I think that suffrage. is right. That's right. And, you know, there was a hiccup. There was one point where it got through by mistake or there was some regulation. That was in the 50s, I think. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. But then they quickly remedied that. Well, that was interesting, wasn't it? Yes. But um, that, So the, it passed accidentally and yes. then they realised and they were really quick to change the law to make sure. The, so they can change the law if they want yes, to. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, but exactly. what interested me was that if it's not passing it in the Senate, yes. this is really the landed elite, the property. Yes. yes. Um, why do you think the most economically liberated and privileged in society was so against universal suffrage? They had everything. So. But they had it because of their position, in mm. a way. So it's this exclusive notion, I think, that... Um, I mean, it, it's almost... It's really... It's a question of human nature, isn't it, mm. about... When you have something and you feel it's precious and you're worried it will be devalued by others having access to it, mm. I think there's an element of that. I mean, my mind is racing to all the sort of exclusion, inclusion frames, that citizenship that I deal with, you know, of recent migrants who get here and then then say, but no one else should come here. Well, you know, where, where, where does the sort of inclusion and social cohesion flow from that if you're wanting to just preserve it for the group that got here first or the group that are wealthy enough mm. who have the vote and don't want to give it away it's that's i think that's what's mm. going on. i mean we're, we're speculating obviously but, but it is but it's but it i is, find it interesting mm. um mm. It, but um i think this whole question of resisting women to vote because my feeling is the women's lo arguments were so logical but the, the male reaction was completely irrational. Yes. Which always fascinates or, or, me. Or ideological. About or ide we, yes. what, yeah. I mean, again, I, the parallels are so strong with, um, you know, this stuff that's current in terms of the logic of having more women in parliament to better represent, you know, um, the people. Um, economic issues to do with universal childcare that 
you know, in every sense, economically, socially, work um, um, force participation, quality of childcare, all of the things, they make sense on every level, yet there is a resistance. Mm. There's something ideological going on about women's role in society. And I think that obviously yeah. is the other point that we really have to stress here for those men who were, li- who were um, in, you know, upper house and men generally is an ideological sense of what women's role is in society that plays out in, yeah, in all periods. Well, I, just, I have to refer to um, one of my favourite feminists, Virginia Woolf, who yes. she said in her proto-feminist essay, A Room of One's Own, that the history of men's opposition to women's emancipation is more interesting, perhaps, than the story of the emancipation itself. Yes. I think they're probably equally interesting. Yes. But well, they are obviously mutually dependent, aren't they? Uh, yeah. I think we've probably um, touched on why this happens, but... There were some really pretty interesting arguments against it that were that were posed. Mm. What were some of the arguments posed by the anti-suffrage movement, and and who were some of the notable critics? Well, um, I don't actually have the names. You probably will be able to help supplement this a little bit more, Lara. But um, you know, it was about the breakdown of the family. Um, and um, the nature of the voice in Parliament. I mean, there were a whole mix of um, changing the order of society. I mean, I broadly think of it about the the disruption to a sense of what is proper in society and that women's capacity wasn't equal. I mean, there was a um, devaluation of women's um, intellectual capacity. It was about their... That ultimately, that the family would fall apart um, mm. was another key notion. Um, but you might want to supplement some of that as well. Um, well, there's some, some funny ones that come out that you know, basically, she's you know, a woman is too interested in fashion that she's not mm. really going to be interested in serious matters that it's unwomanly. Yes, um, yeah. the language is really you know quite crazy. But there was a very interesting Labor senator in Queensland during one of these debates because it was said that women would basically neglect their homes. Mm, you know, if, if you yes. give them the vote, they're going to neglect their homes. They yeah. won't be looking after their children or their husbands. Yes. And the Labor senator for Queensland, who is quite funny actually, he says, does anyone imagine that in the interval between one election and another, which is about three years, yeah. um, a woman will interest herself in nothing but politics, that she would devote her mornings, her noons and her evenings to politics, 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 Nothing but politics. Do they believe that when her husband gets up in the morning, instead of his breakfast, she will give him Hansard? (laughs) (laughs) I just thought he was great calling out all these cronies. Yes, it's interesting. Um, Deborah Cass, a late colleague of mine, um, and I wrote a piece called Representations of Women in Australia's Constitutional System. It was one of the first pieces that looked at gender and the Constitution. And when we talked about representations of women, we talked obviously about the nature of representative democracy but we also included in that piece some of the the way women were represented in society and that sort of um, language made me think of that aspect of our piece Um, yes that that notion that women were not capable it would devalue parliament and I think the most important one in the sense of the ideological framing is that it would take women out of the home which Mm. is their proper place and one of the things the women's movement did do was break down that barrier between the domestic sphere yes. and the external world. Yes, the public and the, the public private. world, the public yeah. and the private. Yes. And, and in fact, that was happening across the board in art and music and literature at this mm. time because artists began to paint women outdoors, writers began to write about women 
in all parts of society. society yes. um, so it was happening on many fronts, yes. really. But yes. it, they were very strong spheres that, yeah. that people felt women were the domestic yes. sphere and men were the business rough and tumble of the world. And we see that, again, in my sort of continual links, taking you out of the mm. 19th century to today, but in terms of the feminised workforce, you know, women who are large, more more predominant in the caring roles, which are the more domestic, caring, private sphere in mm. terms of personal support, as opposed to the public roles or the outdoor construction. All those sorts of mm. dichotomies still play out um, in profound ways in terms of gender equity. Mm. Yeah, they really do. Um, one of the great arguments for suffrage, of course, was no taxation without representation, representation. which yes. was commonly um, voiced. Why do you think something so logical as that would take so long to win the day? Well, I think, again, it comes back to the exclusivity of power Um, because, you know, the logic of that today would actually take us into a different realm even today because there are lots of people who are permanent residents in Australia who pay tax but don't get to vote. Mm. So we don't have the fulfilment of, you know, no taxation without representation. It's a sort of an interesting idea. Some countries do have permanent residents voting. Um, but from the gender point of view, of course, yes, it's absolutely logical. Although, following on from what we just said about the public and the private sphere, there are a lot of women who weren't working in the public sphere, who weren't taxpayers, and I would argue but that doesn't diminish their right to vote. So that sort of dichotomy about um, taxing and contributing in a financial sense as being a quality of one's right to vote um, should be pushed often because contributions can be in a non-financially mm. um, remunerative way, but they benefit the nation like the, all that caring work that is unpaid. So. Yes, uh, there are interesting political questions. It's a little questions. bit basic, isn't yes, it, I suppose? Yes, it was yeah. a strong argument, but a little bit, yeah, yes. little bit basic. Yeah. Um, we should actually quickly mention New Zealand because, yes. of course, they were the first to grant women the right, right to vote in 1893, but not they didn't Get extend the, it to entering Parliament. That's right. Um, the, is there anything you want to say about No, I think, that, uh, I think that's right, that we're, um, we do claim because of the double aspect of right, the vote and standing that we were the first in that fuller sense of suffrage. But New Zealand's, I think, such an interesting jurisdiction in terms of its progressive approach, not only to women but, of course, to its Indigenous mm. population and notions of inclusion um, and uh, those different historical influences, you know, again, have long-term positive effects um, or, or negative enough, you, you know, mm. that the, the, the differences play out. Um, but um, they have, I mean, they are an inspiration in mm. some of those progressive aspects. Speaking mm. before about how women would write these pamphlets under pseudonyms, in yes. fact, one of the great lobbyists in New Zealand was Mary Mueller, and she... Um, uh, posted all of her pamphlets under the name Femina, mm. which goes to that question yes. we had before about the correct yes. roles for women and this idea of women aren't feminine if yes. they're lobbying for their rights. Yes. And yet she decides that her pseudonym is going to be simply Femina. Yeah. This, which is Profound uh, statement, isn't it? Mm, yes. It really is very interesting. Um, now we're going to get to South Australia yes. because it's so exciting and, and important. So it's the first government to grant women the right to sit in their parliament yes. as well as to vote. Yes. Um, can you take us through that story of how South Australia became this? Well, I think, I mean, again, Claire Wright has done that really well in her book um, and, you know, the basic sort of, um, I think it's been represented in a film that she's done as well 
um, essentially the miscalculation that have been made um, uh, about the numbers, I think. I'm, I'm not as full bottle on, on the exact sort of steps, but it's been, um, it's been very well documented. Um, and that sort of quirk of history, I think, in essence, that enabled um, both aspects to get up um, is one that, you know, is, well, you know, it's significant in putting us out there as, as the first, but it wasn't that significant in terms of the immediate follow-on in terms of women actually standing. That's right. Let's perhaps take a look at how Claire Wright describes um, proceedings on the 17th of December 1894 at the moment when... South Australian women are about to become the most enfranchised women in the world. She writes, The next morning the house was again buzzing. The suffragists were not the only ones who'd been up all night. Staring down the barrel of defeat, the Conservatives now decided upon a breathtaking, risky course of action. They abandoned their opposition to the bill and adding instead a last-minute amendment to strike out Clause 4, which read... Until otherwise provided by the Act, no woman shall be capable of being elected to Parliament as a member of either House thereof. Clause 4 stipulated that women would be ineligible to run for parliamentary office. Without it, the Bill offered the broadest franchise anywhere in the world. No man in his right mind would vote for that, even a Labour man. Not even the women were asking to be allowed to run for election. Indeed, Mary Lee, in her deputation to Frederick Holder, had made it patently clear that women did not aspire to be lady candidates. The Conservatives were sure this outlandish amendment would sink the bill. However, it didn't sink the bill, and in fact the bill did finally pass through at 11.35am. The count was, in fact, quite telling, because the count was 31 in favour and 14 against, so it was you know, almost unanimously carried in many respects. I think it is also a powerful reminder that formal rights don't necessarily lead to the actuation of those unless there are other, um, there's attention to the other practical norms that prevent that actually happening. Mm. And I think that's an ongoing, I think that's the current issue of the gender sort of equity movement is we've, We've changed a lot of the formal exclusionary aspects in our legal system, but we haven't really dealt sufficiently with the more fundamental um, barriers and hurdles from the different life experiences and diversity of life experiences that aren't properly incorporated into the way we operate democracy. And um, that's why we... I mean, you know, we've had... Um, from 1902, women's right to vote and stand for parliament. But here we are in 2021, and we don't have equal numbers of women in in any. You know, in, I mean, the Senate is getting is clo- is is the closest we've got here in the Commonwealth. But if you look around the country, and if you look around our public institutions, I mean, the foundation I'm working for, 50/50 by 2030, is to pay attention. We're still nowhere near that. Um, and yet we've had those rights for a very long time. So mm. there's something else going on about why it is that women haven't been able to, to be equal um, participants in leadership. And maybe it is, goes back to some of those 19th century conventions which are really hard to actually get rid of. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think you've mentioned previously in other lectures that 
just the whole framework of parliament in fact, it's far away from pretty much everyone in Australia. Yes, yeah. Um, it's not conducive to having families and children no. and women are still yes, indeed. the carers. Yeah. Maybe that's one of the hopes from the COVID scenario that they had to have remote parliament and maybe that will be a liberating force for not only women but people with a disability and aspects that have made it difficult for, for people to even conceive of themselves as putting themselves up to be representatives. Mm, that's mm. true. Mm. And one of the other interesting things about the South Australian legislation is that it was a universal franchise, yes. which therefore meant women of colour, yes, First indeed. Nations women yes. and men, of course, yes. adults, yes. um, were enfranchised that's for the right. first time. That's right. So that is a particular area of history that Patricia Grimshaw has written about as well, where um, you did have Indigenous voting rights for that short period. What is really fascinating is that we look at the, the changes to the Commonwealth Electoral Act in 1902 to enable women to vote, but it effectively took away the right of Indigenous women to vote. Now, those Indigenous women who were already on the electoral roll as a matter of pedantic sort of attention, they couldn't have had their votes taken away. But anyone who was Indigenous after 1902 who would have otherwise had the right to vote in South Australia couldn't. Um, after 1902 and again that shows the tension between sort of the gen gender rights movement and indigenous rights which shouldn't doesn't need to be a tension but it, um, historically um, they weren't coalescing at that period. Um, it's really it's you know the debates around the enfranchisement of First Nations people really mm. make for very difficult reading mm. today. Yeah. Um, it's you know shameful really yeah. and, and you know it's difficult to even talk about it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, well, just as for, for people to be clear that um, Indigenous Australians were always Australian British subjects in the sense that the membership and rights that go with membership. Um, and then when the Australian Citizenship Act came into force in 1949, they were Australian citizens. So there's never been a question as a matter of law that they are members, but it, they are a... Um, very um, powerful reminder that your status doesn't necessarily equate with your rights. So even though they were citizens, they didn't get the right to vote until 1962. Mm. Um, the referendum was actually about their inclusion on the um, census, not about their citizenship. But it, was, but it is a form of practical citizenship, but their actual formal citizenship has always been as full members, is, but they don't get the rights that we normally associate with full membership. But that's uh, another whole podcast for you. Isn't it is indeed. And the, the thing that strikes me about that is it comes down to some of the lines Hannah Gadsby often used is that when you look at the complexities of those things, you realise they are decisions that people go to an effort to mm. make. Yeah. And it's, mm. yet they, you know, it's, which I find the priorities there really yes. quite disgraceful yes. and hard yes. to bear as an Australian, indeed. actually. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think in a way, sometimes the government's put a burden on us yeah. to have to bear those yes those consequences for all of us yes. really yes and then t the follow-up for me is then to empower us to be active citizens to try and change that that's right exactly mm. now we're going to get to now on the topic of citizenship yes. section 41 it's taken yeah. ages to get there <laughs> good so timing so this you is relevant to your yes. scholarship yes um, and one of the key elements of this podcast series as we've been talking about is to explore how the 19th century continues to influence our lives today. And as a document drafted in the late 19th century by Victorian men, um, I say Victorian men as in 
Queen Victorian men. Yes, as opposed uh, to the state, state of, of Victoria. Victoria. Yeah. Um, let's drill into this section mm. of the Constitution because it reflects the feminist debates of yes. the 1890s. So how did Section 41 end up in the Constitution and what is its proud feminist history? Great. So um, I have been so interested in this section for a very long time. When, in fact, when I first started teaching constitutional law back in 1993, um, I had that section to teach and there was a case that I had to teach about that section. So the section says that no adult person who has a right to vote in any of the um, states can be prevented from voting in the Commonwealth. Now that wording represents those women that I was talking about earlier who said if we have the right to vote and we're going to vote about this constitution we will not allow this to pass unless our vote is protected. So that section really is a testament to all of those women who were advocating um, in South Australia and had the vote, the power of the vote in South Australia and later in Western Australia because by the time of the vote on on the constitution, um, Western Australian women were enfranchised. Um, and But the link back to when I first started teaching constitutional law in 1993 is that there is a 1983 High Court decision which came about when um, Malcolm Fraser called a very snap election. And the reason why that is relevant is when you call a snap election, when people aren't anticipating it, it means that whoever is on the electoral roll at the time has the right to vote. But if you, for some reason, have just become an Australian citizen or you've moved house or you don't even have a house um, or um, you've turned 18, and so you're, you know, all those people who are not quite on the electoral roll but who should be on the electoral roll, the norm is that you're given time to get yourself onto the electoral roll so that you can vote at the election. And part of the um, um, commentary at the time was Fraser had made it a snap election and closed the electoral rolls very quickly because most of those um, uh, cohorts in a, in a um, voting pool may not be as supportive of a conservative government compared to a progressive government. So a group of um, individuals or one of the public interest advocacy centres in Sydney thought, well, with this desire to exclude a certain amount of vote, let's see if we can challenge that using Section 41 of the Constitution, which says that if you have a right to vote in the state, you can't be vote prevented from voting in the Commonwealth. We will get onto the electoral roll, someone who's just turned 18, someone who's just been naturalised. There was an Indigenous person who didn't have a regular um, address and they all got, they all applied and got onto the electoral roll in New South Wales and then applied to the Commonwealth electoral officer to say because we're on the electoral roll in New South Wales we should be on the federal electoral roll for the election. And that went to the High Court and the High Court very interestingly resisted that application and said no you can't be on the electoral roll even though if you read it strictly on its wording you would be entitled to and the ironic aspect is that they used those women of the 1890s to read down that section and that terminology of reading down is um, perhaps a legal form but it's basically saying that their approach was that that section was for those specific women who wanted to keep their vote and that by 1902 when the commonwealth 
um, change the Electoral Act to enable those women, all women, to vote in federal elections. When we say all, we're remembering not all women because mm-hmm. Indigenous women weren't there. But their philosophy of the majority of the High Court was that from 1902 that section no longer had any salience or relevance because it had achieved its purpose of enabling those women's votes to be protected. Now, there was another aspect to their reasoning, which was that if they didn't interpret it in that narrow way, it would give the opportunity for states to start altering the power of the states in a federal election because they said what would what would stop them from enabling, say, Queensland decides that 16-year-olds can vote for their elections, then those 16-year-olds would have a vote, voice in the Commonwealth when 16-year-olds in other states can't. So they also used a federal argument that for a uniform voting system for a federal election, it was better um, to read down that section and not allow the states to have uh, that power. And um, so in essence, um, that section, which I, you know, we can um, cheer for those women, the men of the High Court, because there was no woman on that mm. court at the time when they made that decision, determined that those women's voices were very finite. And so yeah. at the time you were, when that was happening in 83, you were 17, I think. That's right. Um, yes. So you couldn't actually dissent no. as a legal scholar. No. But you did come back later. I did. <laughs> and you wrote a dissenting judgment. And So what was your yes. key argument in your dissenting judgment? Because it was only Justice Murphy who dissented. That's right. There was only one dissenter. And we should put the context that um, this wonderful feminist judgments project, which has been happening around the world came to Australia and they called out for individuals who would like to write what is called the feminist judgment. Um, and because I'd always loved this case and teaching it and talking about the women of um, South Australia whose voices are in our constitution, even if they'd not been properly heard, it gave me the opportunity to write what I'd called a feminist judgment. And the essence of what I said in my judgment, and it was quite fun doing this, was that those women were not just interested in themselves. They were interested in a fuller form of representative democracy. And indeed, Catherine Helen Spence was a proponent for proportional representation. They were totally committed to representative democracy for all people, all women, not just those women of the 1890s. And so my judgment read that section as it reads, which is that if you do have a right to vote in a state, that you then continue to have that right in the federal um, arena. So those people who had got onto the electoral roll in that particular instance should have had the right to vote at that federal election. And I dealt with the federalism argument in a way that also has a feminist um, impetus, which is that when I've done some work on feminism and federalism, and in essence, one of the values of a federal system is you have different almost um, um, pilot projects going on around the country where you can test out ideas that others can then look at and compare with. So that if Queensland, for instance, did introduce um, a lower threshold of age for voting as 16-year-olds, maybe that would then be something that would encourage other states who wouldn't be forced to do that, but it's it's, um, a way of actually having a form of what I call competitive federalism for better policies mm. um, and that that actually is one of a, a, the value adds of federalism not that everyone's is the same but in fact that we can try out things differently in a way that will then better inform the national policy 
And so um, that's the way I resisted the majority's judgment about the concern about it distorting the federal system. I said that it would actually enhance our federal system to enable that to occur. There's just one other lovely story about the convention debates, though. When they were, when they were arguing about Section 41, there was a very strong concern about this idea of them having more influence over a possible referendum change. Because Section 128 of the Constitution provides the framework for changing the Constitution and you have to have a majority of people in a majority of states to, part, to make the suggested change. And the delegates were saying, well, each of the states will have to have their own majorities, but those states that are, have, have enfranchised their women will have more of an influence over the overall um, uh, vote for any constitutional change. And so what they did is they inserted a third paragraph into that section 128 which says until there is universal suffrage the votes for the nation um, when they're when they are calculating the votes for the nation only half of the votes will count for those states that were previously enfranchised so any ref i don't even i need to go back if there had been a referendum between 1901 and 1902 because of course they did become universally enfranchised but if there had been one in that period, in South Australia and Western Australia, only half of their votes would have counted for that overall vote. Mm. And they even discussed in the convention debates, Pat Grimshaw pointed this out at a lecture I heard once, they even discussed whether they would get the women to hand their votes in, in pink <laughs> to be able to, but then they just decided, no, they just cut, cut them in half. Wow. So, yeah, so there was that sort of discussion in the, in the, in the 19th century in the Constitutional Convention debates. And I often, I think you also about what you're saying that, you know, if indeed um, there there was this idea that for Section 41 had a sunset, yes, wouldn't you put something in the Constitution to exactly. say, and at the time when women do have the franchise or whatever, yes, we, yes, because, exactly, and, and it wasn't until 1983 that that was read was, down. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Excellent legal point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now we are losing time yes, here quickly, are. but. Um, Let's look at the idea now of um, women and the law in yes. terms of women legal practitioners yes. in the 19th century. Yes. And I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't think this is going to take us very long because I don't think there were No, that's many. right. Exactly. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. So the first woman to graduate in law in Australia was Ada Evans. Evans. That's right. But she didn't practice first. So she was the first person to actually receive her degree from the University of Sydney in 1902. But she didn't actually practice until 1918. I think, was she not allowed to practice till then? Yes, because Yay. there was the resistance of the profession. So you could get your degree, but you weren't able to practice. But that wasn't the case in Victoria. Yes. So um, uh, another PLC graduate, um, Grata Floss Matilda Grieg, um, who was um, known as Floss Grieg, she was born in 1880 and became the first woman to graduate in law from the University of Melbourne. Um, and we know that her sisters, who were also PLC girls, went on to the University of Melbourne and did medicine and science. So they were a family. It would be interesting to find out about their father's approach to education. Most of the cohort of that um, first intake at Melbourne University were from PLC because PLC was the first school in the country in 1875 to educate women to university even before they were allowed into university. So very strong feminist mm. influence um, that I was influenced by too, which we might quickly come back to at the end. But 
she graduated and then she was the basis of an act to enable her to actually practice as a lawyer so she's the first woman in the country and there is a wonderful again another plug and wonderful organization called the grata fund that is using her name's um, inspiration that um, supports public interest advocacy which um, anyone listening can google the grata fund to Mm. see the wonderful work that they do but yes she um, she is uh, she and Ada and a few few others. I, I have a website called um, Australian Women Lawyers as Active Citizens, and again, people can Google that. And in it, I've got some information about each of the different colonies or states' first women lawyers, um, because they were all trailblazers. They were absolutely amazing. trailblazers, and the trailblazing continues to this very day. She was admitted on the 1st of August 1905 mm-hmm. and thus becoming the first woman to enter the legal profession in Australia. Imagine mm. how intimidating that would be. Oh, I know. I've got shivers just thinking yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. You're the only woman. In, I think it's difficult for women in the legal profession yes. today, yes. let alone yeah, then. Indeed. Well, it was dubbed the Floss Grieg Enabling Bill to remove some anomalies in the law relating to women. How about that? That is brilliant. Mm. Now, we've got a few minutes left, and I just want to um, go to another um, feminist lawyer, uh, scholar, legal scholar, Professor Joanne Conaghan in the University of Bristol. Right. Um, I want to look at this sort of abstract idea about the law and women, about how the law as a concept is Mm. symbolised as the figure of the woman blindfolded, Mm. holding the scales Mm. of justice, suggesting Mm. that the law is even-handed and neutral Mm. and that all is fair in the eyes of the law. Mm. Um, Professor Joanne Conaghan um, wrote a book in 2013 um, called Law and Gender. Yes. And she makes a really interesting comment in an interview about the book. She says, Feminists on the one hand insist on law's inherently gendered nature or mm. its differential gendered effects, yes. while law continues to hold on to the fantasy of neutrality. Yeah. She continues, society is deeply gendered, that is, it reflects, reinforces, constructs, maintains and constitutes particular gender relations which vary over time and place. Now, it is the case that historically there has been a considerable amount of consistency in the extent to which gender relations have reflected and benefited male interests rather than female. So it's a pretty staunch comment. I love her bravery. Yes. Um, But I wondered, what what do you feel? Do you think that the law is neutral or is it gendered? Look, I I totally agree with her. (laughs) But it, it comes back to where we're sitting because where does the law come from? Mm. Our parliament. This room it was Yes, made. exactly. And so the gendered nature of our decision-making body impacts on the gendered nature of law. And, you know, it, the notion of impartiality is is so difficult to, to argue for when, in fact, we're human beings who are making those decisions, influenced by our life experiences, by our place and role in society that may not even be conscious in those individuals' minds. So we would, you know, it's not as if there is necessarily an intention to disadvantage women in some cases, although there are some people who do have that um, inclination. But it's more about the structures and frameworks that have been created by men living in men's worlds without taking into account sufficiently the different life experiences of not only women but also men with different backgrounds from those who are in power. And I do think that law becomes a frame for recognising how deficient our democracy is in better representing the needs of the whole 
community um, and um, it you know is a really perfect site to interrogate um, there's a great um, there's great work going on in the sort of feminist legal world interrogating laws is in terms of the gendered impact um, Ramona Vijaya Sara at the University of Technology Sydney is doing a specific project on this but it that and that project reflects really what we should be doing about all laws in society in terms of who do they privilege, who do they protect, and even in the guise of neutrality, what what is the impact of that law? I mean, there's this, this great note. It's, it's about the issue between formal equality and substantive equality. So you can, as we said before, we've changed a lot of the laws that make things, uh, you know, the Sex Discrimination Act, the Affirmative Action Act, but unless the playing field recognises the difference in your life experience, then whilst it might be formally equal, substantively it's not. And there's this great image that someone showed me of um, a platform for someone to stand on to be able to see over a fence. Mm. Now the platform is equal for each of the people standing. So everyone's given the same opportunity. But one person's short, mm-hmm. one person's medium height, and one person's tall. And the only person who benefits from that platform is the person who's tall enough to see over the fence. Now, that's, I think, a great representation between formal equality, mm-hmm. we all had access to the same thing, and substantive equality. Is that really enabling because of our different life experiences? And I guess that's the challenge that the 19th century experience that we've been going through is a reminder of just how how real that is today and is such an ongoing um, project for all of us. Well, Kim, I think we are out of time, which is sad because we could keep going, but thank you so much My for coming pleasure. today to yeah. meet in the Cabinet Room of Old Parliament House. House yeah. um, and I also want to just quickly give a little mention for your book, which thank has you. been pub- it's published now and is yes. about to be launched. Yes. Do you want to tell us the name So, of it? yes, I've been um, very uh, not subtly referring back to PLC. So I was... Um, um, at the, the school in between 1974 and 1982 when Joan Montgomery was the principal there. And I've effectively written a biography of Joan who turned 96 um, on the 6th of July. So it was actually formally launched in Melbourne on her 96th birthday, but we're going to be having a sort of Canberra launch um, on the 12th of August. And it's called The Vetting of Wisdom, Joan Montgomery and the Fight for PLC because it also includes the end of her term as principal which is another story that I would argue is about patriarchal power and um, and the was the my first experience of seeing power trump reason and I think mm. is part of my own psychology of a desire to resist improper exercises of power oh on that note we're going to finish because that's you've summed it up magnificently thank you thank, <laughs> thank you, you Lara. so much thank you Professor thanks Kim Goldenstein <laughs> no Kim Rubin <laughs> There you I've go. called you Vida. I've called me Vida. Um, um, it's, no, it's a nice association yeah. I'm very proud of. Although, yes, um, hopefully her failed independence re- um, reign doesn't impact on my own no, my no. own life story. But anyway, it was a real pleasure and I love what you're doing, Lara. And I think that anyone who gets to listen to your series benefits from the insights for our current day. Oh, thank you very much. Great. <laughs> and for those of you who are interested in Kim Rubenstein's music selection... We have played today Clara Schumann's Piano Concerto in A minor, Opus 7. And it was performed on a recording of Isata Kana Mason. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>